Lord be with you. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be gathered in your house together with your people. Um, would you nourish and enrich us by your word? And may we um, process this together and grow in our knowledge and love and worship of Jesus. We pray in his awesome name. Amen. So, I got this idea of talking about the idea of sin, um, just thinking about Lent being upon us. So, the, uh, my hope isn't that this becomes a depressing conversation, um, but it is helpful, I think, just to look at the world for what it is and look at our state and what, uh, what reality is, because so often... Um, people choose to approach how the world is or why the world is the way it is either by putting their head in the sand and pretending it's not it's something that it's not or trying to maybe maybe if I just change the lens on my glasses you know put make them rose colored everything will look brighter and nicer and you know maybe if I just kind of put blinders on I can walk around and just, hey, everything's okay, and tell myself a mantra. You know, I'm okay, I'm okay, everything's okay. Um, but, you know, we all know that at some point, if you live long enough, you're going to bump up against uh, the reality that the world's not okay, um, that there's much that's broken. And there's a variety of voices that are in our culture, in our own lives, uh, maybe that are trying to provide in even a helpful way, trying to help us to navigate what does it mean to live in the world as it is. And, um, but I think that echoes the fact that we are all made in God's image and that there is something in and about being human that is wanting and remembering something like what it was like to be in the Garden of Eden. There's something in our makeup and in our longings and desires as human beings made in God's image, image that knows instinctively, though the world may not be right, it should be like fill in the blank. You know? So politicians come up with their reasons for, well, it's the, you know, the Republicans saying it's the Democrats who have made this mess. And then it's the Democrats saying, well, it's the Republicans that have made this mess. And we know how to fix it you know, on either Polar, polarized side. Um, and that's what we end up getting is these messages that are, you know, that some of them may have hints of truth in them, but they're certainly not the entire story and the big story of what's going on. And so everybody, though, recognizes it's broken. And so the Bible obviously has a way of talking about that. And it's something you, if you come to church, you're going to hear about. You're going to hear about this three-letter S-word, you know, sin. Um, sin is the reason the world is the way it is. And, and there's, there's a number of ways the Bible talks about sin, and that's kind of what I wanted to take, is look at these metaphors and images and descriptions of the true condition of the world and of ourselves and see what the Bible has to say about those things. And also look at the reality that God hasn't left us in that mess and predicament. So hopefully we'll be able to do those things and maybe it'll spur some good conversation um, and questions. So um, I, I titled this The Vandalism of Shalom. Um, and 
A few months ago, my wife and I put our house up for sale. We live in Southside, um, and you know, it was, it was kind of hard to let go of this house that we've been in for five years. And two of our, our two girls had been born there, and it's really most of what even my son knew growing up. And so, it's you know, it was, it was obviously there's a lot of memories there, and it was special. Well, we put our house on the market, and immediately got offers, and which was just great. We were so thankful. But Southside has a a unique kind of interaction of different kinds of people that live there and such. And so we had never had an issue with being uh, graffitied. But shortly after putting our house on the market, sure enough, we got our back fence tagged, you know, with graffiti on it. And it was just, it was a senseless, just dumb thing. And so, you know, I went to Home Depot to get some, you know, spray stuff that was supposed to remove the stain. If you leave it on there and then scrub over it. And of course it didn't really fully work, but I did take a pressure washer to the fence and I realized, oh, well, this whole fence is kind of moldy anyway. <laughs> I better just do the whole fence, you know, to get rid of this graffiti, you know, but it did, there was a sense of man, that wasn't right. We kind of feel a little violated. Like, you came and did something to our property, you know? And I've had my car stolen before. I've, I've had a previous house broken into before. But there is something, you feel like, man, you, you were kind of, um, you're messing up my good feelings here, <laughs> you know? Like, I thought everything was going to be all right. And look, you've broken in and wrecked something. You've done violence to something. That's not okay. And I think that's, that's the depiction, I think, of what has happened to God's good creation, God's good world, we, his creations. Um, there's been something that has vandalized that, that has um, twisted and marred what God declared good in the garden. And in the garden was goodness and peace, Adam and Eve living in harmony with one another, with creation, and with God. Uh, they were in right relationship with God. Um, walking with him in the cool of the day, Genesis says. And so what we have in the Old Testament is prophets who are dreaming of an age when what has become crooked uh, in humanity would one day be straightened out, that, that what has become thorny and rocky and rough would be smoothed out, that what is foolish would be made wise and humble, um, that all of creation would once again walk with goodness and joy with the God who made them. Um, and there's a word, though, in the Hebrew that I think really encapsulates this, this webbing together of right relationship with God, right relationship with one another on a horizontal level, and it's shalom. Shalom can mean peace, um, but it also means wholeness, completeness, uh, the rightness, uh, kind of a fulfillment of all good and delight. And so... I really think it's a wrecking of shalom that has happened to our world. Um, and it's been ruined because of sin. And so God desires us to be flourishing, to, be, um, to delight in him. Um, but we know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so I want to use just as a working definition of sin for us, it's the culpable and personal affront to a personal God the culpable and personal affront to a personal God. Um, it's sometimes easy if you hear the, the rules in the Old Testament read, or you know, even at, in our communion service, you know, we hear you know, 
the, the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments. Sometimes we can hear those things as action items or like a dutiful you know, boundary line. Do this, but not that. As though it's strictly about behavior. Um, and it is about behavior. There is actual you know, actions that are sinful. But really what I'm talking about is even an entire attitude and relational disconnect that has happened um, between us and a personal God. And so that's, that's what the spoiling of our shalom has become. So a fairly familiar psalm, Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. You have that, Frank? Can you read that for us? Hear, hear this passage about sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Yeah, our sin is directly against God. Even when we're sinning against someone else, even when we're sinning against our own selves, um, it, we are sinning against God, ultimately. Um, we're violating a relational trust there. And, um, and our sin, it goes in that vertical direction. It also goes in the horizontal direction. We pray in our Book of Common Prayer, you know, we have sinned in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, but also by what we've left undone. It's not only the things we've positively done, it's the, it's the things we've failed to do as well. We've failed to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Um, and and St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he, he, he called this being curved in on ourselves, that instead of relating rightly to God and to one another, we've become curved in on ourselves. We've looked at um, we've turned into what, what is best for me? <laughs> what is going to make me most happy? What is, uh, what is, we, we, we turn into selfish um, decision makers and creatures. And um, in this search for security that we all have, we, are, we become restless and anxious. We um, usually turn into, mm-hmm. you mean we aren't born that way? Oh, we are certainly born that way. Yeah, David says, even in my mother's womb. Um, you know, that he was sinful. Yeah, we are sinful from birth. Uh, and we get that from Adam. Um, I mean, that's ev- every human born after Adam and Eve was born with original sin. Um, an original bent into ourselves uh, when we're born. Not, not a natural disposition to right relationship with God, but it's something that's been breached and broken. Um, and, and though we're born with a desire for freedom... We also face the reality that we're finite, that we're limited in our ability to be free uh, because there's always something in us that is turned in or curved in on ourselves. And um, I'm, I'm reminded of, yeah, this is even when we, when we fail at something or if we succeed at something, regardless of what we do, Calvin says our hearts are idle factories. We're always constantly feeding this factory in ourselves of whether it's success, uh, reputation, um, of comfort, personal satisfaction, whatever that looks like, we're constantly coming back to it and doing it. And it's why habits die hard, don't they? <laughs> even, if they're, even if they're good things, that's the hard thing about the gospel. 
is even good things can become idolatrous. Uh, we can mistake the giver of gifts for the gifts themselves. We can want the gifts and not the giver. Um, you know, God, why haven't you come through with for me in this regard? Why doesn't my career look the way I wanted it to? Um, and it can be things that we've chosen, and we demand God to. Pro- God, you're supposed to be on my team and be about what I want. Why has this not happened the way I thought? Um, and and so, so there's a couple metaphors for sin that I wanted us to look at. Um, one is sin as disease. The Bible talks about sin being a disease. Um, Psalm 38, verse 3, and 103, verse 3. Who had that one? All right. Get the glasses ready. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no help in my bones because of my sin. No help in me. Go ahead. And then uh, 103.3 Who forgives all of your inequity? Who heals all your diseases? Yeah. So there's, there's a kind of correlation in scripture talking about this unhealth that is in us that we're we're sick inside it's a, you know it's almost like cancer you don't always know it's even there and yet it is that um, I think Jeremiah the prophet says in a place um, you know the heart is deceitfully wicked who can understand it, um, it, it even it even deceives us it, we, we don't know that we're sick and yet we are the Bible says and um, that's why Jesus, when he came, he said, you know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And of course, he came for everyone, both those that had it right, the Pharisees, the religious elites, the pastors and priests, he came for them. And he also came for those, kind of like in Andrew's sermon that he was talking about, whoever those, quote unquote, are out smoking in the alley are, you know, whoever we want to look at and be like, what are they doing, you know, and gosh, they, they need Christ in their life, you know, like it, it many times it's obvious when you know somebody and see how they live, but a lot of times it's way under the surface, you know? It's, it's in the quiet of the heart. It's, it's in what, what we do with um, the original temptation in the garden was to not trust God, you know? It was, you remember what the serpent said to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Is that what he really said? You know, they, they put doubt in their minds, like, oh, Maybe God's not after my own best interest. You know, maybe I need to look out for myself. I mean, that's the ultimate sin. It's the, I'm going to, regardless of what God says, I'm going to live the way I'm going to live. You know, we're like Burger King. I want it my way. You know, have it your way. And, um, but that's why Jesus said, I came for the sick. Because they're the ones that need a doctor. Um, we, we are those. And, and it's interesting that those, there's so many scenes in the Gospels where Jesus is touching lepers. He's touching those who have been paralyzed or are mute or are blind. And he's restoring a physical element to them. And I think there's something um, symbolic that's happening in Jesus' ministry, even though those are real miracles that he's performing. I think it also speaks to the sickness of the human heart and the, uh, the reality that we need Jesus to bring healing. Is, that's what God is about. He's about healing what has become sick in us, that we are all born with this, as you rightly pointed out. And we need to be healed. Um, 
And so um, Paul says in Ephesians 2, actually, that not only are we sick, he says we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are spiritually speaking dead. Um, we, we don't have a li- lively relationship with God on our own. We're not just born knowing God. We're actually born with this sin nature, and so we're dead in a spiritual sense. Um, much like Ezekiel saw the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. like We are like those dry bones that it takes the breath of God, it takes the, the work of God by His Holy Spirit to raise us up and make us alive, um, that we are dead apart from Him. Um, and so, so that, that's sin as disease. There's another way that the Bible talks about sin, and that's spiritual hygiene. That, um, yeah, that, that we're dirty and in need of cleansing. Um, you remember in, uh, was it Lady Macbeth, who, you know, she felt, she started to feel guilty about the murder of Duncan, and she, she was furiously scrubbing her hands, trying to wash the blood off of her hands because she was racked with the sense of guilt over what, what had happened. Um, and the Bible does say, you know, though our sins are like crimson, we will be made white like wool. Um, all right, so there's two passages I gave out regarding this. So there's Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, and also 7. Okay. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And then verse 7 says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Yeah. This sense that we need to be cleaned, that our sin is a defilement, that we are actually dirty because of our sin. This, this, and sin, again, not just being actions, but a state of being separated by God, being bent inwards. We're all dirty, spiritually um, unclean. Um, the author of Hebrews describes this as well. Hebrews 10.22, who has that one? Let us, draw, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Yeah. And, and of course, in, in, in that part of Hebrews, he's talking about the atonement of Jesus, how Jesus is a better sacrifice than what the bulls and rams and goats of the Old Testament could provide, that Jesus is the pure and final, complete <coughs> sacrifice. And so we, we do need to be cleansed and purified. And in fact, baptism has that as a symbolic element, doesn't it? That, that our sins are actually washed away by the blood of Jesus. That our uncleanness, we are made clean in God's sight because of the work of Jesus. Um, so, that's, so we've got sin as a disease, sin as spiritual hygiene. Um, there's also just sin as distortion. Um, it, it's, it, it's distorting the way reality is. Um, theologians have, have called it a parasite, actually, that it, it has to, in order for evil to exist, it actually has to feed off of good. Evil doesn't exist in a vacuum on its own. It, it's actually a, a non-thing, in other words. It, it's dependent and a derivative of good. 
So you have to take something that is actually good or true or beautiful and then twist and pervert it. That's what evil is. It's not a thing on its own. Um, so, so that's what theologians would talk about. They would say it's a privation of good. It's not a positive force in its own right. So darkness is really the absence of light. Right? Um, blindness is the absence of vision. Poverty is the absence of riches. You know that, that they're not that they parrot they're a parasite. They have to feed off of something, and so that's why a lie is just a distorted truth. You know, and there's always some truth at the base of a lie. Uh, you know, it's based on something that's true, and it takes it and twists it. Um, it distorts it. And th- again, this is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. You know, like this this is not how it's supposed to be. He weeps over our world today. This is not how it's supposed to be. It's, it's taking what is good and true and beautiful and just mangling it. It's almost, it's barely recognizable at that point. Um, and so, so that's why things like pornography are a mockery of what's true. It's just a mockery. It's, it's taking things that are meant to be, you know, sexuality is a good thing, but when it's distorted, it becomes a mockery of what it was originally intended to be. Um, and that's what's happened in our world. Everything has been distorted and twisted. Um, um, C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this. He said, goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. There must be something good first before it can be spoiled. Um, any Lord of the Rings fans? Uh, I, I love Lord of the Rings, so sorry, forgive me, but uh, there's a character in there named Gollum, and he used to be a hobbit, so he used to be kind of a normal character, and then when this ring became his precious, and he became obsessed with it, what it did, he became this really hideous, ugly creature, and it's really meant to be that image of when we're so curved in on ourselves, we're, we almost lose our humanity. We, we lose that, that image of God in us becomes ve- so distorted it's almost unrecognizable. Um, and that's why we're able to say, you know, people like Stalin and Hitler, they were monsters, right? I mean, th- because they, it, was, it was hard to even recognize the image of God in somebody that would do such grotesque, awful things to other human beings. Um, but I think Gollum's kind of that representative. It shows us a picture of what we're like when we're curved in on ourselves that we're actually marring what God has intended to be good. Um, And this isn't obviously just plays out on an individual level, though it can. It plays out in things like addiction, relationships, um, in our own hiding from God, like Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden immediately because they felt shame. Um, our world is cloaked in shame and covered in it. But there's also obviously patterns and layered upon layered of societal problems that have developed because of this. You know, they're all ultimately, we're all culpable. And yet, what, you know, what did I have to do with the event that happened on the other side of the world? You know, I didn't directly cause that. Or, or today, you know, people who are going, hey, I mean, I didn't own slaves in the 1700s, 1800s. You know, I'm not responsible for um, the racial inequality that has happened today. And there's a sense in which that's true. But then there's also the sense in which you're part of something so much bigger. 
You know, you're not just an individual. You're part of a society, part of a culture. And um, I'll never forget, um, after graduating college, I um, went to do an internship in New Orleans in the inner city, and this was before Katrina. And I went into one of the worst government housing projects in the nation called the Desire Project. An enormous, I mean, picture all of downtown Birmingham filled with brick building after brick building that are just very plain of government housing projects. You had tens of thousands of people living in this, like, one square mile area, just less than half a mile from Interstate 10, just half a mile or about a mile from the French Quarter in New Orleans. Nobody, you would never go there if you were going to Mardi Gras or going on business to a convention. It was just tucked away, divided off and quartered off by um, uh, an industrial canal and several railroad tracks. It was just tucked away there. And I drove up to this place where there was a ministry building that I was going to work at, and I thought I was in a third world country. Broken windows everywhere, kids just running around in the street playing in puddles, and um, you know, graffiti everywhere, and I thought, I, I've never seen anything like this. You know, this is, this is what happens when sin runs amok and it becomes a blight in, in a city that virtually ignores what's happening. You know, and these are people made in God's image who are having to live in this condition. Meanwhile, um, the rest of the world just goes on and doesn't notice. You know, that's, that's a, there's, there's a sense in which that's cultural vandalism, that something has been just so marred and tainted and destroyed. Um, the Flint, water, Flint, Michigan water problem, another, you know, it's not our problem, it's somewhere else. But yet, it, it's an expression of what's really wrong. What is really wrong in our world? And, and you could come up with your own examples, I know. The Rwandan genocide, Israel and Palestinian co- conflicts, what have you. But, but there is a sense in which sin is elusive almost. And, and Paul the Apostle talks about the spirit of this age, or he even calls Satan the god of this age, the god of this world. Um, you know, that this age is going to pass and God's going to bring a new age that's going to... And so... I'm going to open this just up for, like, discussion or something, but... As we close, there's one more passage, and or actually two from the book of Isaiah that I want to that you know we need to leave on a a note of what God has done. You know we can, we can dwell all day on the what the problem is, but if we aren't looking at what the solution is, um, we are going to walk around with a giant burden on our backs, and it's going to feel hopeless. The truth is it's not hopeless because God didn't leave us on our own. So Isaiah 32, 15 to 18, somebody read that, and then right after that read Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. These are prophecies from the prophet Isaiah. His own spirit destroyed upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed before us. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, 
and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Yeah, you see the peace, the sense of shalom that God is promising there. A rest and a security and a comfort and a flourishing. All right, Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Yeah. It's like Jesus saying, Behold, I make all things new. You know, there's not going to be any weeping and mourning, no more pain, no suffering. It's going to be joy and celebration and wonder and praise of the God who has done these things. And what we have in Jesus, in his finished work, in his death and resurrection, is a foretaste, an inauguration of a new kingdom, a new day in a world that is full of darkness and despair and hopelessness and sin. He's come to reverse the curse. And he's begun that work. That's the kingdom of God. It is here in our midst. And it's continued in the presence of the church. It's continued as God's, um, God's work is made, continued to be made known through the proclamation of this good news, through the individual sanctification that, the Holy Spirit is bringing upon His people um, as you engage and wrestle with your own inward bentness, your own sin, as you look to Jesus for saving. Um, and as we do this together and witness to the world that there is a day coming, that things are going to be different. It's not going to be because of a political agenda. It's not going to be because of you know a pick-your-cause environmentalism homeschooling, whatever it is, those things aren't ultimately going to make the world new. The only thing that is is God's awesome power. And that's what we are awaiting. And so I love the you know, Christmas season you know, singing joy to the world. And there's, there's that phrase in there that Isaac Watts wrote, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as, far as, far as the curse is found. And that is the good news. God has the final say. And we're living in between. You know, the, we're still waiting for the final, final end of the story to unfold. Um, so this was just my thoughts looking at um, what's wrong with the world. It, I'd love to hear any of your thoughts or questions or if this provoked anything. And you? I have a question about Lent. Okay. Is there any, does the church have any teaching um, that says, you, and the reason I ask this is because my wife and I discussed it, she knows much more about the Bible than I do. And, and this year, rather than giving up something like, you know, a glass of wine at night, she said, I'm going to just take on something. Hmm. And, and She's probably talking about some form of Bible study. I'm going to read. I'm going to study, you know, word for word, the New Testament or these chapters or these books or whatever. Mm-hmm. So my question is: Is there is there any teaching about the church 
that says you ought to do one or the other. I mean, I must be traditional. You give up something for land. Mm-hmm. Right. See? Yeah. And this probably has nothing to do with it. Probably not germane. Well, well, I mean, the seasons of the church calendar, I mean, in one sense, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. I mean, that, that's why we meet on Sunday. It's actually, that was the day Jesus rose up from the dead. Um, and so we, we should always remember the resurrection as the last word. But there are seasons in the church calendar, Advent and Lent, are seasons of um, penitence. I mean, there's a sense of looking, there should be some examination that's happening. And that, that's how that developed as a tradition in the church. It's not canonical, it's not mandated in scripture or anything like that. But I think some Christians have seen that as a helpful way to um, connect more deeply their faith to their life. And so if, if that's helpful to you, uh, I think there's, it should always come with a warning, like this shouldn't be about a self-improvement project. I, mean, I kind of like Andrew's phrase, this year for Lent, I'm just giving up. You know? <laughs> Period. Like, I'm just, yeah, because self-improvement projects are not the gospel. That's not the gospel. It is adding to or replacing something about the finished work of Jesus and ultimately, it's either going to lead you to pride or to despair and shame. I mean, ultimately, if you're putting trust in those things, again, I think they can be formative and helpful patterns or practices as long as they help you look to Jesus. Does that make sense? So, yeah, I mean, picking up more Bible study, maybe that's what your wife needs to do, you know? And maybe, um, maybe looking at one particular habit that, whether it's a sin or it's just not something that's making you a better person and you want to cut that out, great. I mean, you can do that year-round. You don't have to do that just in Lent, you know. I mean, I'm always amused at the, I'm signing off of Facebook for Lent, you know. Like, it's like, oh, that's great. I mean, you should probably practice that more than just Lent. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but, but that's, that's fine, you know. Like, if that's helpful to you, if you are drawn, um, if you are become more amazed at the work of Jesus, and that helps you, great, but don't mistake it for the work of Jesus, is what I would say. So, does that make sense? So, so, but Lent developed as, hey, this was, Jesus went and fasted and prayed for 40 days in the desert, just as he did that. The church, and Moses was on the Mount Sinai for 40 days. There's this sense of a pattern of the church going, hey, you know, let's follow these things. So that's why it originally was more of a fast. When you, when you were going through seminary, were you taught that kind of how you are? No. To um, advise or preach or teach or whatever. What I just said, or the the uh, teaching of the. Oh no no no! I, I I was I was trained at a Reformed seminary, and so the, uh, even a lot of the Reformed churches don't look at the church calendar really very much, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, that they, they would kind of see that as an add-on to the gospel. Again, I I like the seasons of the year drawing our attention, emphasizing certain things. But you should never forget its resurrection. And that's why actually in Lent, Sundays are not fast days. They're feast days. It's a feast day. Jesus has risen from the dead. Hallelujah. <laughs> um, and so it, it is good news. It's, always, it's ultimately good news because of Jesus. Um, but we certainly need to look at and examine. The Bible calls us to examine our lives, to look at our sin, to repent. I mean, you know, that, that's never going to end in your life. You know, it's a cycle. It's... Repent and believe the gospel. I will say um, that my wife gave up going 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, it's hard. Yeah, and you and you should tell her, hey, you know, in the Jewish day, day begins the night before. So really, Saturday night, you know. That's, yeah, there you go, exactly. So yeah, that's, you know, and people find ways to cheat. And again, that's just our human nature, you know, because if you're willing yourself to do something, that's of the flat, that's not of the spirit. I mean, that's, Again, it can be a help, helpful practice. But sometimes we tend, because our hearts are idol factories, as Calvin says, we tend to turn things that are good and ultimately make them idols. And, and that's been the problem in the history of the church with all sorts of traditions, that being one of them. Yeah, that's a great question. If you were given a talk about the New Jerusalem, what would be the three or four main points? Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, it's... That it's the it's the uh, the longing of every heart. I think is for uh, who was it? Irenaeus, early church father, said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And I think that would be um, the New Jerusalem is a place of life. Um, doesn't need the sun because God Himself is the light. You know, we're not there, but it's it's what we're all longing for. And uh, yeah, that's a. Uh, he is coming again. Continue to endure. You know, endurance is an important part of the Christian life because there's so much that's left unfinished. And Paul said, we see through a glass darkly now, um, but one day we'll see him as he is, face to face. And we'll be made like Jesus in a full and perfect sense. Until then, look to him. You know, that's, that's where we are. So... That's, yeah, that's, that's a big one. You can. Pr- there's all sorts of ways to talk about the New Jerusalem. Well, thanks, y'all. God bless. Um, enjoy your Super Bowl Sunday here.